A very warm welcome from St Paul's Cathedral to this, the fourth of our online conversations. My name is Paula Gooder and I'm Canon Chancellor here at St Paul's Cathedral, which means that I oversee the theology and learning that takes place within the life of the cathedral. Today's conversation is with Dr Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury and until recently Master of Magdalen College, Cambridge. Our topic of conversation is the resurrection and we explore many different themes from the importance of resurrection to our Christian faith all the way through to the gospel stories about the resurrection and even our favourite stories. We also think a little bit about how we celebrate the resurrection during Eastertide. If you haven't yet seen our other online conversations, you might like to look at our YouTube channel where you can find conversations with Timothy Radcliffe, with John Swinton and with Sarah Mullally, the Bishop of London. You might also like to come back next month for the online conversation with the Bishop of Gloucester, Rachel Treweek, exploring the theme of encountering Jesus. But for today, I hope you enjoy this conversation, which I enjoyed having enormously with Dr. Rowan Williams. Dr. Williams, it's lovely to have you with us today to talk about resurrection. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I want to begin with the whole question of resurrection. Um, I, it is often the case that theologians, whether they be systematic theologians like you or New Testament theologians like me, um, we love the resurrection and we talk about how important it is. But for many people, it's quite off-putting. If somebody came to you and said, I just really struggle with the whole idea of the resurrection, what might you say to them? Hmm. Yes, it's a, it's a question one does here, isn't it? And a very important one. And I guess I'd start by saying, well, think about the difference between the way Christians talk about Jesus and the way, well, Lutherans talk about Martin Luther or even Americans talk about George Washington. Christians don't talk about Jesus as if he were a distant founding father, a hero that you look back to and celebrate. They talk as if and they act as if this person who was alive in, in the Holy Land 2,000 years ago is still active in a sense really very like that of other people's personal activity. And I'd say to any inquirer, well, just pause on that and begin to ask, what kind of difference is that? What is it in what Christians say about Jesus that suggests more than just a hero in the past? Now, I don't think that solves the question straight away. Obviously, it doesn't. But it just perhaps clarifies where the difference lies for Christians in talking about the risen Jesus. Not a figure you look back to, but a figure who is, in some sense, active, present, here and now, and not just wrapped up in the past. So that's where I'd start, I think. How, how do you come, come at that, Paula? Well, I come at it from a very different perspective as a New Testament writer and a theologian. And um, I think one of the things that 
I say is quite, and maybe very similar, but different in another way, is that the first thing that I would point out is that um, the resurrection isn't a historical event in the sense that we don't have the account of the actual res resurrection. Mm. We have the before and we have the after. Mm. Um, and in a sense, what is important is the before, Jesus was definitely dead and in the tomb, and the after, Jesus was definitely risen and appeared to, um, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, over five hundred people mm. um, and therefore because we're not told that actual event we don't need to worry mm. too much about it um, mm. I think a lot of people worry about that moment between the before and the after yep. and that they have to get their head around it and for me I think the really important thing is that we know that Jesus was risen from the dead and for me that's good enough I don't need more than that so that in a way what we're both talking about is looking at the kind of change that's made by the Ex resurrection. Exactly, that's right. I, I've sometimes said that you're, you're always looking at the um, the crater after the explosion rather than the bomb itself. You know, the, yes. you can see <laughs> you can see the debris, you can see the the hole, but the moment is just always round the corner of your vision. Yes, and it can remain a mystery for me. Yes, yes. I don't. I don't. Um, very famously, um, David Jenkins was accused, wasn't he, of saying that the resurrection was um, just a conjuring with bones. Mm. It's worth noting that he didn't actually say that, did he? Quite. He said it was more than mere yeah. conjuring with bones. Um, but in a way, um, people get hung up on that phrase um, in their minds, I think, mm. that the resurrection is some kind of conjuring with bones. And then they say, well, I can't really get my head around that, so therefore it's difficult. Yes. Um, and yes. forget that the theology of it is much more, um, is, is different than that. And as you say, it's the after that is the very interesting feature for us. Yes, yes I think so. Mm. And um, if someone said to you, um, surely you could carry on believing without the resurrection, um, what might you say? I'd say it might be possible to carry on believing in God in some way, but not not the Christian God. I think I would have to stop being a Christian if I didn't believe in the resurrection. And to be honest, um, if somebody came up with a cast iron case that there was a coffin somewhere in the Middle East with Jesus of Nazareth written on it, I would have real problems. Like you, I don't want to go too much into the, um, what do we call the mechanics of the resurrection. But I think if, if there were that kind of absolute proof that Jesus was in his tomb, I would have problems. And more broadly, if I didn't believe in the resurrection, my whole attitude to the person of Jesus would change radically. He would then just be um, a saint or a hero in the distant past, and perhaps you know a, a figure of inspiration, a figure of, um, well, a figure who excited my feelings about God, but it wouldn't be the Jesus that I believe I meet in prayer, the Jesus with whom I pray, in whom I pray, the Jesus I meet in the sacrament of Holy Communion. I couldn't make sense of Holy Communion without the resurrection. And so there'd be quite a lot of, um, of consequences like that. I agree entirely. I mean, for me, one of the really interesting things is, is also it feels as though our salvation hangs on the resurrection as well. Mm. Of course, the death of Jesus is kind of the, kind of the nub of our, what we believe about salvation. But if Jesus had just died, then yes. salvation would be very much the poorer, I think. Yes, yes. 
I think so. If if Jesus had just died, then you could say, well, that's another tragic instance of the nightmare world we live in. Great people, holy people, innocent people are chewed up by the horrors of political power and oppression, human violence, and and all the rest of it. Um, People in Jesus' time were crucified in their thousands by the Roman authorities. And you, you could say, yes, that's, that's a heartbreaking tragedy, but it wouldn't in itself tell you much about God. What the resurrection says is that in and through the embrace, the non-violent, forgiving embrace that Jesus approach, with which Jesus approaches his agony and death, God is at work, and God demonstrates that God is at work by being faithful to Jesus in his dying and beyond it, so that God continues to be there in the life of Jesus, which means that that life can't be extinguished. It goes on being real. And it feels to me, when we look around the world today and um, all of the challenges we're facing more so than ever at the moment, that resurrection is essential for us. Mm. That without resurrection, I would find it very hard to be hopeful. Um, I would find it very hard to kind of to look Mm. at the awfulness of the world and have anything positive to say, I think. Yes, I I think so. And and that's that's very different from saying that the resurrection is a kind of happy ending. One of my teachers in Cambridge years ago used to say, you mustn't think about the resurrection as if it were just Jesus miraculously coming down from the cross and not really dying. No, Jesus really dies, really enters into the dark pit of our our loneliness, our abandonment. And that's crucial to the whole story. And it's there that God remains at work, as if to say, not even the most horrific, lonely, betrayed kind of death can push God away, can make God powerless or unreal. And that's that's the hope, not that God, as it were, steps in to make it easy for us, or that God comes down out of the skies like a deus ex machina, you know, the sort of miraculous resolution of all the problems, but that through the whole thing, like, well, like the root growing in the earth towards the sun, God is irresistibly moving forward in a life that can't be extinguished, so that although Jesus truly dies, even in his dying, God holds on to him and, as it were, takes him in his hands and presents him to us and says, he lives, I live in him, and you can live in him. And I love the way that um, some of the New Testament writers describe God as a result of the resurrection, as the God who raised Jesus from the the dead. The God who raised Jesus, yes as a, rev- a revelation of God's character. Yes, For me, that yes. always says, and therefore we'll always bring life out of death. Yes. Therefore, we'll always be able to, out of the worst experience, bring a sense of resurrection. That's right. It, it, it relates, doesn't it, to the way in which St. Paul talks in the first letter to the Corinthians about the God who, who brings something out of nothing. That's always the way God works. God's complete freedom to be God, to be everlasting, intelligent love. That, that is what makes sense of creation. And because God creates, God can recreate. God can give life in the beginning. God can give new life in Jesus. 
And so just as God brings something from nothing at the very beginning of the universe, so at Easter, he brings the something of new life and new community out of the nothingness and tragedy that is the death of Jesus on the cross. Thank you. Um, it's beautifully put. And for me, it kind of sums up why um, no matter how complex it might feel to believe in the resurrection, we need to do it anyway around the mystery, around the complexity mm -hmm. of it. Um, can we just have a think for a moment about the Gospels? Um, because, mm -hmm. of course, the Gospels are where we encounter one aspect of our understanding of resurrection. Paul is another area. Um, and one of the things that fascinates me is um, how much resurrection you get in each Gospel. So mm -hmm. you move from Mark, who barely has any at all, mm -hmm. and um, you could argue doesn't really have a resurrection narrative because Jesus never appears. Appears, um, the res resurrected Jesus doesn't appear in the shorter end of Mark. Um, all the way through to John, who um, has many, many resurrection appearances. It's almost as though he goes, oh, and another one, and here, another one. Um, why do you think it is that we get different resurrection accounts in the different Gospels um, from almost none to many of them? Um, what, what do you think is going on for the Gospel writers in that? Well, I'd love to hear more from you as, as a New Testament scholar, because I just have to come with this as a an ordinary reader, but it seems to me that the different things that the different gospel writers do with the resurrection all have something to do with the kind of gospel they're writing. Mark is is very clearly out, I think, to, to tell us that the act of God in Jesus is consistently surprising to the point of being shocking. And again and again, he will talk about the amazement, the astonishment, the sort of gobsmacked quality of the people around Jesus, the setting in which Jesus finds himself. This is not what we expected. This is not what we could have made up for ourselves. And so his version of the resurrection is as sparse as could be. He's not here. And the women who hear that don't know what to say. And it's almost as if Mark then looks up from his writing, looks us in the eye and says, so you are the ones who are going to say it. You are the ones who are going to meet the risen Jesus and start from there. Matthew, I think, who's all the time interested in Jesus in the context of community and history, the history of the covenant people. Matthew gives us a great set piece at the end, Jesus addressing a large multitude, just as he does at the beginning of his ministry. Jesus, as it were, on, on the mountain like the new Moses. Jesus drawing together that common life of the Jewish people through the ages, the history of the covenant. And establishing that, that new community by giving the instruction to baptize. So there you have again, something that grows out of the way Matthew tells his story. Luke, I suppose, Luke is conscious that he's got more to tell. So we're bridging between the story of Jesus and the story of the first community, as Luke tells it in the Acts of the Apostles. So in Luke, there's a very strong sense of um, Jesus, so to speak, holding the group of disciples together to wait for the Holy Spirit and also 
an emphasis, certainly in the wonderful Emmaus story, an emphasis on how the breaking of bread in that community of believers becomes the way in which Jesus is still present. And that breaking of bread in the presence of the risen Jesus, waiting for the gift of the Spirit, is something that, as it were, shapes the vision that then unfolds in the story of the Acts of the Apostles. As for John, well, always harder to sum up John's Gospel, isn't it? But, and people do sometimes talk about John 20 and John 21 as almost um, different attempts to come, come at the same themes from different points of view. There's certainly that very powerful sense of the risen Jesus relating in a transforming way to the distinct individual personalities of his followers, whether it's the story of Mary Magdalene recognizing him when he speaks her name, or the extraordinary story about Peter and the beloved disciple in the last chapter of the gospel, where Peter is as it were, walked through the threefold stages of his betrayal, and that is turned round into a threefold affirmation and renewal. And we're also told that the calling of Peter is not the same as the calling of the beloved disciple. And so I think part of what John's Gospel is saying is the risen Jesus becomes, there's a wonderful poem by Robert Browning about this, becomes the one who completes, who complements the utter distinctiveness of every believer. So, yes, it's it's looking at how how those stories fit into the whole tenor, the whole key of the gospel story, how they tell those stories, what they're interested in throughout the gospel. And does that make sense to you of the New Testament? Uh, absolutely. Um, I, um, almost exactly what I would say too, which is always kind of nice to hear it, isn't it? Um, and I think... I think what it kind of reminds me of is that we often end up with quite a monochrome conversation about resurrection. Mm -hmm. um, either you don't really believe in it or you do really believe in it. And therefore, there's just one thing or it might be a quite complex thing, but one thing that you can say about mm. it. And what I love about the different gospel accounts is that you get all sorts of different things that you can. And it's as though the resurrection becomes a lens through which you can see all sorts of different things and you exactly. see things differently. Exactly. And I think that the diversity and sometimes, you know, the unclarity or even the, the surface contradictions in the stories are part of that sense that there is something going on which no one version and no one story is going to capture for you. And if you just say, well, after a couple of days, Jesus stopped being dead and that's it, then that, that's not particularly illuminating. But what the Gospels do is, is to take us through all these different levels and perspectives on what it means that life has been remade, that the world has been started all over again, both at the community level and at the, the individual level. And also, very importantly, I think, in with that rather stunned ending to Mark, not knowing what to say. I don't know what you think about this, Paula, but it does strike me as interesting that whereas in the stories of Jesus's suffering and death, you have lots and lots of references to analogues and foretypes in the Hebrew scriptures. The resurrection stories don't have that kind of constant ringing off to Old Testament prototypes. It's as if there, there isn't quite a language for it yet. 
Um, absolutely, I agree. Um, I, I think one of the really fascinating things is that the Judaism of Jesus's day was beginning to find a language to talk about resurrection, mm, but it mm. wasn't. It was they were at a very early stage, and um, so as you say, there's there's no real type, mm, and mm. and you can't even go back and say, and this is like happens to so and so, because one of the really key features, of course, is that while I'm on, and this is where you, you slip into slightly technical language, but while people have been revivified in the past, yeah. they've been brought back to life, um, they will die again. Yes. What we're talking about with Jesus is something of a completely different register. Yes. Yes. So there's no type to compare it to. Exactly. Um, because yes. it's it's just a new experience for people. Yes. And that's, that's one of the things that really makes me t take those gospel records very seriously, because when you see people struggling with something for which they haven't yet got words, you can, I think, assume that they, there's something serious going on. It's, they're not just recycling familiar tropes. They, they are genuinely feeling their way to something that's new. And if that's the case, well, you imagine something rather new must, must have been going on. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one of my um, favourite episodes of that is the um, Road to Emmaus, where um, you have the two disciples, um, one named, one unnamed, going on, along to Emmaus. And, um, and what I think is utterly fascinating about that is we know from the conversation they have with Jesus that they have heard that Jesus has risen. Mm -hmm. um, and their response is to walk away from Jerusalem despondently. Yes. Um, so clearly they think that whatever they understood by resurrection hadn't happened mm. um, and therefore were utterly wretched. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any thoughts about what they might have thought, what, why, why they would be so despondent um, when actually they'd heard the news of Jesus' resurrection? Mm. It's partly, isn't it, that they, it, it, hasn't, it hasn't yet come home to them personally. They're, the first thing in their minds, as the story suggests, is that they are going over the, the hideous events of the last 36 hours. They're, they're remembering um, a figure beaten, bruised, covered with blood, the marks of flogging, being tortured to death in extreme agony and being buried. That's at the front of their minds. Now there's a story going round, oh, that the body isn't there and um, that somebody says they've seen an angel and they think, well, great, but what does that change? And as they walk along in the presence of Jesus, the light changes. New things become visible. Jesus says to them, now, just look back over the whole story of God's dealings with God's people. And can you see a pattern coming through? A pattern of divine freedom coming into the void left by human betrayal and human and human sin. Can you see God stepping into that in the whole history that we share? Because if you can see that, maybe you can see what might be going on here with Jesus. And then, of course, they sit down, he breaks bread, and here and now, that life, that open door into reconciliation, homecoming, love and forgiveness is there in the broken bread, in the meal that they share. And and then they can rush back to Jerusalem and say, you know, it's, it's true, he, he has actually risen and we begin to know what it means. 
as a biblical scholar, one of the my most frustrating moments in reading the Bible is that point where um, Luke says, and Jesus explained to them the whole of the scriptures. Yeah. And I want to say, and you couldn't have written it down. <laughs> but <laughs> in a way, perhaps it's the point, isn't it? Is that if they had mm. written it down, then we might have then been a bit lazy in our own interpretation of scripture. We'd oh. have just gone to it and not tried ourselves to understand. That, that's right, I think. And, and we might then have had a sense that, well, here is the interpretation of scripture, which we can hold at arm's length as something which has been sorted out for us, so we needn't bother. Mm -hmm. But here we're back to St. Mark, aren't we? Mark, as they looking up from his manuscript, looking us in the eye and saying, over to you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the other thing I love about Emmaus is that that slow turning outwards that you get in the disciples. So when, when Jesus first meets them, they're caught up in their own misery and despondency um, and simply can't even do that imaginative leap to who this stranger might be yes. until you get to the moment where they're at Emmaus, wherever Emmaus yes. is. Um, and then they invite Jesus in. So they've turned outwards at that point. And there seems to be something quite important about that dynamic going on. That's very interesting, isn't it? it it's as if... They have to be ready to welcome him, and that takes a bit of time. Yes. Maybe that that comes back to our first question, doesn't it? You can you can talk people through the resurrection. There is a moment at which, I suppose, you just have to be ready to to take the risk of opening the door, inviting him in. Um, and I I think there of a remark by the philosopher Wittgenstein one of his notes from, I think, the 1930s or 40s, where he says, and it's so poignant in a way, he says, I'd love to believe in the resurrection, but I know that I would have to be a very different person to believe in the resurrection. I'm not sure I want to, I want to be that different person yet. That's fascinating, isn't it? Really, really interesting. And, um, and, and maybe that, that difference is that ability to look outwards um, and mm. to receive mm. rather mm. than... Um, receive, um, yes, yeah. yes. So we've been talking about my favourite um, resurrection account, which is the Emmaus Road. Um, do you have a favourite one? I think it's probably the story of Mary Magdalene at the tomb. Um, it's, I think it's told with such extraordinary economy. Mary Magdalene is left alone at the tomb. The angels have gone away, the disciples have gone away, and she's just left absolutely high and dry. She doesn't know what's going on. And she's still grieving because she, she's assumed, assumed the worst, you could say. She's assumed that the body of somebody she loves has, has been stolen. And this stranger comes up behind her and says, what's the matter? And she says, they've taken my master away. I don't know where he is. Was it you? Have you taken him? Do you know where he is? And he doesn't answer. He just says her name, Mary. And she instantly says, Rabuni, master or beloved master. And that's it. And the recognition happens in that moment when her name is spoken. And to me, that that is so, so central to Christian faith that in, in the presence of Christ, you know that you are known. You know that who you uniquely are is seen by God and welcomed and affirmed by God. And that's what God works with and transfigures. And well, that's, that's why I take it 
that story is as, as simple and as profound as it is. Mary just recognizes the fact that she's been recognized. And then, of course, Jesus says, but don't cling to me. It's not, in a sense, it's not me you have to focus on. I am going to my Father. I am moving back into that fullness of everlasting life, which is my eternal hope. And that's that movement, that movement towards the source of everything, the ultimate divine source, the Father. That's the center and the animating force, the animating energy of this new life. So don't imagine, I'm really paraphrasing now, but you know, don't imagine that I'm here to found a Jesus cult. I'm here to bring you to the Father. I'm here to bring you to a new humanity which will have the same kind of freedom and the same kind of delight in the infinite beauty of God as, as I live in. So there's a huge amount there about, I think, about how we understand God in Christ as relating to what is most real in us and a huge amount about the kind of new life that we're drawn into, which is, so to speak, moving with Jesus in the current of Jesus's life, flowing into that infinite mystery together, not just for Mary, but for the disciples to go and tell the others that this is what's going on. And that translation of the very famous Noli Me Tangere, um, which is sometimes um, taken as, well, that's the Latin of it, um, mm. but sometimes taken as don't touch me. Mm. Um, don't cling to me is a much, much better translation, isn't it? it because yes, otherwise you, you get in caught in this slightly odd, well, why can't she touch him? What's, yeah. what's wrong with that? Yes, it's, it's almost sort of don't, don't grab at me, don't, um, don't snatch. Mm. And um, um, it's very rich for reflecting on, isn't it? In in what ways do we still grab at Jesus? Um, mm. it's, a, it's almost as though we have a kind of an innate desire to cling, to grab. Um, and Yes, and, and so to domesticate. So you know, Jesus becomes a kind of um, almost a, a trophy for us. Well, we've, we've got him. We know what he means. We know who he is. Um, and we can use that sometimes to, well, we can weaponize it against other people because we know we've got him, he's ours. And that he's not ours, that he's always moving away or moving towards others, that surely is, is part of the resurrection mystery as well. Yeah, I think that's, that's really important. So, Rowan, we've been talking about the gospel accounts. Um, let's um, turn our attention now to Paul, and because Paul, the resurrection is so very important at the heart of Paul's own theology. And while you find it all the way through his writings, the, the chapter where it is most important is 1 Corinthians 15. Can you tell me something about um, what you think Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians 15? Well, clearly he sees himself as trying to... Um to resist some, some kinds of misunderstanding. And you might guess that the misunderstandings are almost at opposite ends of the spectrum. The idea that resurrection is just something which is going to happen at the end of the world, and that's all you need to know, or the idea that you're living the risen life absolutely and fully here and now. So I think part of what he's doing is saying, well, look, this resurrection business, it started somewhere. It started in our history in our lifetime, and if you want to know about that, 
these are the people, these are the narratives that will fill it out for you. You can go and ask Peter, you can go, go and ask Jesus' brother James, or the hundreds of other people to whom the risen Jesus seems to have appeared. So it's begun, but it's not over. And it's interesting, he, he uses exactly that image of seeds growing. We are not yet what we shall be. We're in process of being formed in the new life. And the culmination of that new life is when, at the end of all things, Jesus, the incarnate, the embodied life of the eternal word and son of God, so to speak, picks up the whole world, reconciled and renewed, and hands it over to the mystery of the Father's love in its completeness. That's what we're all moving into. And I think Paul is in this chapter trying to show us how that process, beginning at Easter, the first Easter, looks towards the culmination of all things. And we need to have just the kind of confidence that we have about seeds growing in soil. It doesn't all happen at once. It doesn't all happen in the same way. But that's where it's moving. So I think he's, he's trying to, to hold a kind of central path with that clear focus on an identifiable beginning and a hardly imaginable end. But how, how does it read to you, again, coming at it as a New Testament scholar? Well, I think the thing that fascinates me about 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul is linking our own resurrection to yes. Jesus's resurrection. That's what, He makes that kind of direct link. So he's saying, if you want to know what is going to happen to you after death, then you look, you can look to Jesus and mm -hmm. see some indication, some patterning of the kinds mm -hmm. of things that our experience of resurrection will be like. Mm -hmm. And that I find utterly fascinating and how far we're meant to take that. So mm -hmm. for me, one of the really interesting things in the gospel accounts is that Jesus um, appears, Jesus's resurrection body appears to be both continuous and discontinuous, mm. but not in the way you might expect. Mm. I think if you asked um, any one of us to imagine what our resurrection body would be like, I think we might say, well, um, a resurrection body would be me, entirely recognisable as me, but yeah. healed from all the mm. things that I've um, disliked about um, my human body now. Mm. Whereas actually Jesus's resurrection body seems to be the opposite. Mm -hmm. So Jesus is not immediately recognisable. Mary doesn't recognise him. The mm -hmm. disciples on the road to Emmaus don't recognise him. Um, there are multiple occasions yes, where Jesus yes. isn't recognised and his scars are still visible mm -hmm. on his body. And so it's almost as though the continuity and the discontinuity mm -hmm. is opposite to how we expect. That's a very interesting way of putting it, yes. Yes. I think that, that must be right, mustn't it? Um, because and elsewhere, you know, when... Paul talks about bearing the marks of Christ on his body at the end of Galatians. It's as if he's saying the, the thing that matters, the thing that lasts in us is the degree to which we've lived our way into the suffering and self-giving of Christ. And that, that that's what stays, just as in 1 Corinthians 13, what will endure is love. And so, because love bruises and hurts us in various ways. Perhaps that's, that's something of a clue to why the signs of utterly selfless love 
are the signs that mark and identify the risen body. And the other thing that fascinates me about 1 Corinthians 15 is time and -hmm. what's going on with time in the theme of resurrection. Do you have thoughts about what resurrection tells us about time and how we understand it? Oh, that's a very big question, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, Um, exactly. (laughs) Most unfair of me. Most unfair. Um, I guess that Paul here and elsewhere is, is telling us that time matters, you know, that what we do in history, what we do today and tomorrow, how we spend our time really is significant. It really does shape who we are and who we shall be eternally in the presence of God. At the same time, there's always that sense that there is a reality that is always already there for us. Because in one sense, of course, Christ has never left the eternal presence of the Father. The Son of God is always part of the eternal life of God. And in that, from that point of view, um, it's all done, it's all over. And living in that curious kind of collapsed time, that, that, that long-term future of reconciliation is in some sense already real, that's the basis on which we put one foot in front of the other today and tomorrow. We trust the ground we walk on, because we know just something of that everlasting promise being already real. And it's what, it's it's sort of Paul's Theology 101, isn't it, in theology courses, the, the already and the not yet. But it's certainly one of those areas where it comes most vividly alive. Absolutely. And um, when we're in the Easter season, um, we are thinking quite a lot about time. Mm. But I think one of the things that um, is fascinating is within the Christian year, within the church year, we're very good at observing the penitential seasons. Mm. Advent and Lent, um, we know what the shaping of it is and how we might engage with it. But we're less good at the celebratory seasons Mm. like Easter. Um, Mm. And in fact, often when we talk about Easter, we talk about Easter Sunday, um, maybe Easter Monday as well, then we're done, Easter's over. Um, So if we wanted to really embed ourselves in the Easter season. What kind of tips would you give to people to have a think about how we could do that? How would mm. how could we practice Easter through this Easter season? Mm. Well, I think that the resources of the Christian churches throughout the centuries have given us some clues there. The very fact that, you know, we don't sing Alleluia during Lent, but we do sing it a lot in Easter. A, an extra daily prayer of thanksgiving and affirmation, like the uh, the wonderful Easter Traparion that Eastern Orthodox Christians sing all the time during the Easter season, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death. Um, just adding that on to daily prayers is important. But I th- it would be good, I think, if during that Easter season, our public worship could could have something a bit different about it. In the early church, of course, it was it was the era when the newly baptized were being inducted into the full life of the church. They'd been baptized on Easter Eve. They'd have appeared for a couple of weeks at least wearing their new Easter clothes, wearing their white garments for public worship 
I'm not suggesting we hand out white shifts to everybody who turns up in church, but there, there is that sense that this is a season of new beginning. And to look at how our lives might express new beginnings, that perhaps is one of the things we can think about in the Easter season. Of course, in Lent, we like we do the, the negative side of that. We say, well, what's getting in the way of new beginnings? But we often forget, as you say, that Easter is the other side of the coin. That is when the new beginnings begin to live. It is interesting, though, as you say, that we we have this sense of something building up to a single moment of climax, and then it's all over. Just as with Advent and Christmas, we don't think of the Christmas season, and similarly with the Easter season. So I think that, yes, there are things we can do with private prayer, with public prayer, and just with that question, so what needs to start afresh in me now? I can't remember who said it. I'm sure you will be able to remind me. Um, but that lovely phrase, we are Easter people and Alleluia is our song. It's supposed to be St. Augustine, isn't it? Mm. Is it? Yes. Yeah, I, I, it's one of those that I, I, it has many attributions, doesn't it, when you mm. have a look. But, um, and I wonder whether there is something in Easter where we could dedicate ourselves for to Alleluia being our song each day, whether mm. we could... Um, as you say, pray one of the great Orthodox prayers, maybe make a, 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 a note of saying one of the Hallelujah Psalms that mm. kind of puts Hallelujah on our lips, or simply um, are thankful for something every day. And we could kind of say, Hallelujah is my song and today I'm thankful yes, for. That's right. But that, that's the kind of practices that you're talking about for mm. personal devotion I think as so. well, isn't it? And, and also if we're talking about new beginnings, it's something I've often talked about with confirmation candidates. Um, if you're talking about new beginnings, you need to be ready and willing to share with one another stories of new beginning in your own experience. Where have you seen this coming alive? Where have you seen it coming up? And most of us have stories about kinds of personal renewal, kinds of change, transition, liberation that we can share in our own lives or the lives of people we've known. And perhaps, well, I don't know, maybe... In a congregation, you could ask a handful of people to share such experiences in public worship if they're willing. This is this is where new life happened for me. This is what I want to share about the new creation. I think that could be a wonderful thing to do, particularly this year, as um, we will be slowly emerging from this very, right. very long period of lockdown. Um, it will feel like a time of new beginning and whether we could begin to explore together what that means for us. That's, that's I think, a very important reflection on this year, because one of the things that concerns me about emerging from the lockdown and all that it's meant is whether we, we're going to give ourselves time to think what we've learned, time to think, well, what are we going to do with this experience? People have sometimes said in recent weeks and months, we haven't really had much opportunity to do the grieving or the mourning that we actually need to do. But there's more than that. It's It's looking at what new perceptions have come up and really being being sure that we've got those in focus, that we're clear that there are some new perceptions that have to change into new ways of action, new ways of understanding ourselves and one another and understanding the world we're in and the work people do for us. 
Rowan, it's been a wonderful conversation. Um, thank you so much for your time and for your wisdom. Thank you, Paul. It's a delight. Thank you.